0: From smart council today's episode is one that we're really excited to present but also one that needs some explanation
1: as we've said before smart council exists to equip the professional counselor social worker prescriber and other provider with the perspectives and resources needed to provide the most competent and effective services possible
0: we recognize that counselors and social workers work a complex job serving complex people living in a complex world in any given session the client and professional may represent ideologies Values and behavior patterns that are radically different from an even indirect opposition to each other. We don't believe this needs to be a deal breaker in relationship. We do believe that the professional holds the primary responsibility for bridging the gap by learning how to understand the client's point of view.
1: Another complex relationship is that between colleagues. Within counseling, social work, and related fields, there is a diversity of opinion, value, methodology, and hoped for outcome. Again, We don't believe these differences need to be deal-breakers, but we do believe that if we are to work together effectively, we need to be able to understand each other. As people helpers, we need to be able to competently dialogue about complex topics, including the perspectives that oppose our own, without hostility to the person speaking.
0: Today's episode talks about addictions. We took questions from our listeners and posed them to ourselves and two guests. Both of our guests are seasoned addiction professionals. They are also Christians who are fairly open about how their faith orientation shapes their therapeutic approach. And this is what we wanted to explain. We wanted to have a conversation with Christian professionals for several reasons.
1: First, we recognize the tension between faith-based and evidence-based approaches to therapy, particularly addictions therapy. As professionals, we ourselves place a high value in hard science. But as Christians ourselves, we also place a high value on the role of faith and spirituality where it can be properly utilized. We also place a high value on living in the tension between the two. What that means for us is promoting conversation with those holding perspectives radically different from our own for the sake of the professional relationship. We teach that to our clients, and we want to model that for our professional community here on the podcast as well.
0: Second as much we are able to strongly critique certain aspects of an explicitly faith-based approach to addictions therapy that faith perspectives spirituality and the belief in a higher power is a foundational component of addictions recovery culture we don't believe that component is going away anytime soon we don't expect people to agree with every aspect of faith-based addictions but if we're going to work In people-helping fields, especially in addictions recovery, we are going to run into Christian therapists, even those who are very explicitly incorporating their faith into treatment.
1: Smart Council Q&A on addictions. Smart Council provides resources and perspectives for providers and students on matters of spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I am Reese.
0: I'm Joshua Moore.
1: And we are here with special guests, Mike Savara and Bob Rapp. Welcome, guys. Glad you're here. to be here. Thank you. So before we get started, Bob and Mike, would you like to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about
2: what is your corner of the counseling world, in particular the addictions counseling world? My name is Bob Rapp and I'm a certified alcohol and drug counselor. I work at the Harbor, which is Portland Rescue Mission's long-term recovery discipleship program. And I serve as growth leader there. I identify the problems that a man came to work on and Help work on those with, with the man, with the men, with God, and with other people.
3: My name is Mike Savara. I am a social worker and a certified addiction counselor. I uh, work at Central City Concern um, at the Old Town Recovery Center. I'm a lead addiction and mental health counselor at the Bud Clark Commons. We do uh, harm reduction based uh, services for folks in the 130 units of the Bud Clark Commons. It's a permanent supportive housing building in downtown Portland.
1: Awesome. And that is such essential work and I'm glad you're doing it. We are going to tackle a series of questions targeted at addictions-related issues. We'll be talking about both drug and alcohol as well as behavioral addictions, unless specifically otherwise noted, which in some of these questions is otherwise noted. These are questions that have been submitted by the students in the Master of Arts in Counseling program at Multnomah University, other questions that have been submitted through other various students and alumni of Multnomah University, as well as some of my friends and people who i know who talk about these things because i'm sort of a counseling nerd and i talk about these things for fun all right jen asks are there substances or behaviors to which you are guaranteed to become addicted after a single use or potentially after three to six months of use
3: I want to say maybe. So I'm a social worker, and social workers a lot of times they take into account someone's environment and uh, their their history. Um, so a lot, a lot of our training and perspective is looking at like their their situation, their their the person in environment, right? Someone there 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 could be someone that would use, uh, say, heroin. Which is a very addictive drug for a, a period of time, and then be and, and then be able to walk away from it because maybe they have the right supports or they um, they 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 have uh, genetics that sort of doesn't predispose them to going deeper and deeper into that uh, pattern. But then there's folks that that don't seem to have those inner or sort of their their systemic protections against that. So I think there's like, there's a lot of factors
0: that go into it. And
3: there's a lot we don't know about um, why one person becomes addicted and one person doesn't.
0: So you could say like with the right genetics, systems, and environmental factors, yes. Yeah, yeah. But only if you have like those things in play. <laughs> totally, totally.
2: I would agree with that. I would say that uh, nothing nothing is guaranteed. It depends on the influences on someone's heart, you mm. know, genetic and environmental, the, the drug itself. I mean, some, some drugs uh, release so many pleasure chemicals in the brain that it's likely with those other influences that over time extremely likely
0: and one would say that if time being a variable was increased that the chances would also increase
2: yes
1: I'm mm. thinking of certain substances say like heroin say like amphetamines that again like you said bob the the instant chemical effect is just so much greater than say coffee or chocolate so those those substances themselves produce a greater chemical impact but it really depends also on the brain that's being impacted.
0: I would also say association, too. I mean, when we have wounded warriors that go into Walter Reed. They are on serious drugs for a year or two before they can start getting off of those. And a lot of them don't suffer from addictions. The medication level always follows pain level. So some people have theorized that it's not associated with recreation. It's not associated with coping. It's not associated with emotional angst. It's only associated with pain that somehow that might be less problematic. And I think that's, that's true. I mean, it's not 100% by any stretch, <laughs> but, but there is lower rates of addiction than one would expect. So we'll segue from there. Missy
1: asks, is there such thing as an addictive personality? Describing someone who's more prone than the average person to be caught in addictive cycles because of their personality.
0: I mean, we know these people, right? <laughs> I mean, they do exist, right? <laughs>
1: but, but is that fair? I, I, I think I feel reluctant to say it's a personality trait. As much as taking the social work approach to considering their whole environment and considering the risk factors, supportive factors. What was their family life? What was their trauma history? What was their genetic history?
2: A really good book is by Edward Welch, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And Welch says that addictions are the intersection of our sin and the influences on our heart. Meaning sin, uh, the heart's tendency to idolize physical desires. And then the influences on the heart, which are nature and nurture, or genetic and environment. And so he says that addictions are at the intersection of both of those. Mm -hmm.
3: I think about the uh, idea of a personality disorder as well. And the DSM-5 has kind of distanced itself away from uh, sort of this idea of like an Axis-2 disorder. They obviously still have personality disorders in the DSM-5, but I think there's there's some wisdom in in being reluctant somewhat to think about a personality as disordered rather than looking at someone's behaviors and patterns and trying to understand those. And it's helpful, I think, to categorize behaviors and patterns in a certain way. So when you look at a, t- a type of personality or a type of tendency towards certain behaviors, I think that can be helpful. But I also know a lot of you know folks, uh, w- whether it's just lay people or it's professionals who want once someone is diagnosed with, say, that addictive personality or borderline personality disorder, that person has a really hard
0: time getting help. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that we would almost like hesitate to even accept calling somebody's personality disordered because of the stigma that goes with that and kind of the, the locked-in feeling that that person yeah. might have. Yeah. And so the addictive personality definition or term is something that we want to stay clear of, but we also don't like the fact it's already been used mm-hmm. <laughs> with other things and mm-hmm. other categories. I couldn't agree with you more.
1: I, f- I feel uncomfortable applying big labels to a person's essence to a person's personality and character i feel much more comfortable talking about the behaviors because again the behaviors are the things that we can look at we can observe we can categorize so so this comes back to to my bias against using the term addict it's convenient and everybody knows what we're talking about when we use it and that's nice but realistically if I identify as an addict, I'm making a statement about my identity, my essence, and to identify as this person who is compulsive, impulsive, out of control,
3: I don't think that's healthy for me. And Do
1: to you identify- Do
0: think that it's healthy for somebody else? I don't think it's healthy for okay, someone else. Okay, just curious. So, <laughs> <laughs> what,
3: what would you say to someone, say, involved in AA who the identification with this community of addicts is, is somewhat helpful for them? Like, how would you talk with someone who's saying, like, no, that that's helpful for me to think about myself as an addict in that way like I I hear what you're saying but I'm just if that person was in the room saying that what what would you say to them I I would say uh,
2: I I work with men on both sides Mm of that in in a Christian program Mm -hmm. and and some some men want to and need to say my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. because it helps them stay in touch with something that they want to pay attention to long term for the rest of their lives and I also also talk with them about their identity too as well and then some men resonate more with identity and that's true, that's foundational and how do I work with them to pay attention to something that's taken them down a lot of times.
0: It feels like it almost emphasizes that first step of accepting you have a serious problem. Right. Mm-hmm. But but Reese would say maybe that's going too far.
1: I absolutely think that the, the addicted person should accept that they have a serious problem and one of the things that I do love about the 12-step culture is the community when it is when it works and when it can be welcoming Mm -hmm. like that and that is something that i hope for all of my clients addicted or otherwise is that they can plug into and identify strongly with the community like Mm -hmm. that i do think though that uh, identifying strongly with the community and strongly identifying with you know bob's term you know with the sin of addiction or with the problem of addiction is problematic so i would i would look for a different way to identify as someone with this
0: experience with the struggle Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm kind of siding with bob on this one (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) okay uh, yeah, we are, we are broken. Like, we, we are sinners. You know, we are all addicts, maybe. And we'll get to that later, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just a spectrum of, of what is damaging and, and what is under control and what is not. And also socially
3: acceptable. Like, there, there are addictions that are perfectly socially acceptable. And you can get to the top of your company or whatever because you work 90 hours a week. And could you classify that as an addiction? Well,
0: I, I think it would go to what is helpful for the individual. And maybe that's what, Bobby, you're getting at, is, is if it's helpful for them, to call themselves an addict and that helps them identify with a specific community and get resources and get help quicker as well as um, identifying their weaknesses in a community within a short period of time that's a good thing for them but then other people might internalize it and have too much of a stigma Mm. and that identification might be uh, too hard to get through uh, or accept i don't know i mean there's probably a number of hang-ups so moving on i have a pair of questions that
1: contrast each other really nicely. And I want to address them both. Debbie asks, what are effective spirituality-based interventions in addictions therapy, if any? Mm. And Zach asks, what are some of the cultural or religious barriers to progress in addiction science and treatment? So Mm. I'm glad that both these questions came up because I think they're both really important. So we'll tackle them one at a time. So starting with uh, effective spirituality-based interventions in addictions. What would you say is the use and role of any sort of spirituality in addictions treatment?
0: I think it's hard to prove otherwise. I mean, what is not spiritually based and still very effective? Same work. Well, I think that uh, specifically in the religious community, some therapists have identified having some difficulties being therapists uh, a few decades ago. But there's been more and more and more research, specifically much in the realm of addictions, where spirituality has been extremely helpful and showing greater efficacy for interventions. It's the reason why they have these terms, higher power, and they're trying to be as inclusive as possible. But why do they all do that? Because the research shows without it, you do not do very well. It's it's statistically worse.
2: And most people that I work with really resonate with a spiritually-based approach. Whether or not it's Christian or maybe higher power and so most people resonate with it so let's leverage that Mm -hmm. and then from a christian perspective i can't think of anything better than what jesus said love god and love people and people get better with relationships without relationships you can have programs and all kinds of things but what really works is relationships
3: just a a shout out to the Genesis process as like a you know really helpful infusion of spirituality and science. Um, really looking at both the research and sort of best practices around therapies that work, and also making sure that the Genesis process is just so full of looking at ourselves, looking at God, looking at others, and trying to um, sort of reconcile and wrestle with how addiction affects us and affects our communities. So I think that's a, you know, Michael Dye did a lot of really good work and has done a lot of really good work around that and around this question. So I mean, that's one resource I would point to. Bob can definitely talk more about that to kind of dive a little deeper if folks are interested in that.
1: I appreciate incorporating spirituality into an addictions process because of the connectiveness and the purpose and the sense of the ultimate in it. One thing I notice in folks with addictions is there tends to be a very strong self-focus and a very small small concept of the world around them of people around them and sometimes it takes well trauma but oftentimes otherwise a sense of the spiritual a sense of the divine a sense of the ultimate or just even a sense of something that's bigger than me to push them a little bit out of themselves and once they can get pushed out of themselves a little bit they can look beyond what's this thing that I'm craving in the moment, what's going to make me the most comfortable, and they can consider the needs of someone else. They can consider the needs of society. In our discussion, it would be very important to, to clarify what we mean by spirituality, which I think that might take us on a tangent, so we won't do that just here, but we have talked a little bit about how it's not specifically the conservative Christian religion, but it can be christianity it can be buddhism it can be mindfulness it can be a higher power it can be some sense of something that's bigger than me and sometimes that's necessary that's helpful any other thoughts on the use and role of spirituality in addiction therapy
3: i'll add something to the to the contrary i guess if that's all right you know i i work in a building uh where a lot of folks have experienced homelessness in the past and I think, you know, if I, when I bring up programs that are, um, you know, sort of known uh, spiritual programs or religious programs in the community, often there's a, there's like this um, abrasiveness from my folks uh, to wanting to be involved with programs that are, say, explicitly Christian. It's like there's a trauma there that after having been homeless and sort of had to go through the um, rigmarole of um, getting services while you're homeless from a lot of these places that have, you know, given food or beds there's there's a there's a barrier there you know you look at you know the last 200 years of um, what service uh, to folks that are marginalized uh, has looked like we, we all know of services and and you know times where you know you have to sit through a, um, a sermon in order to get food and sort of these more maybe manipulative practices that I know that in general I would say uh, the Christian community and spiritual community is moving away from and really trying to build relationship and make sure that folks are being seen as people and and honored as, as such but I, but I think there's just some there's there's uh, pain there and and I think there's uh, there's a lot to overcome and and more uh, dialogue needed to sort of get through some of that.
1: I agree. When we talk, whenever we talk about religion and spirituality, there's a whole lot of baggage connected to those yeah. words for for people who have been addicted to things, for people who have experienced trauma, for people who have experienced mental illness mm-hmm. of any sort. So, so I would definitely agree that there is often a hesitancy to come anywhere close to anything connected remotely to religion because mm-hmm. of this history of. I've been rejected. I've been marginalized. I've been too prematurely judged by this group of people claiming that they have all the truth. What other, what other cultural or religious barriers to progress in addiction science and treatment are you all aware of?
2: Sometimes from a Christian perspective, a person who struggles with addiction will want to be uh, healed immediately. Mm. and And I know that God heals. I've seen point-in-time miracles. Along with that, I've seen over time, miracles, meaning that it's a miracle mm. that one day at a time somebody could not take a drink of alcohol for a year after decades mm. of struggling with alcoholism. So so I think uh, it's just the hard work of daily doing the right thing, which is the hard thing often, especially mm-hmm. r- early recovery, and God will bless it. Mm. So that's one thing from the religious side that we work on. Yeah,
1: religiously oriented clients, maybe unrealistically expecting... Yes. Mm. Uh, massive results too quickly without expecting to put in the work
0: i think sometimes they can be resistant to certain interventions you know it's uh, maybe hard to define you know what you might run into when you're in private practice um, but uh, we have groups of people who are very resistant to do psychotherapy if it doesn't feel like they're talking to a pastor mm-hmm. um, and maybe if you're a Multnomah graduate uh, you can kind of slip and slip that hat on and kind of do a head fake there you know, I mean you really do have those skills, but, but you also want them to engage in psychotherapy. But it can be it can be tricky. They're really not looking for psychotherapy and they're looking for spiritual counsel and you see something that needs other truths mixed in, other interventions mixed in, and that, you know, Bible verses I think are good, but we have a long term thing that we have to talk about and we have to talk about dynamics and relationships and not all of these things are going to be covered uh, in you know your sermons. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that any more delicately. <laughs> I think the biggest concern
1: I have with a, a religious approach to addictions can be just in how we understand addictions at, at all. It's very common in a Christian church setting to regard something like addiction as a sin issue, and we'll use our fancy theological term. We'll call it an idolatry issue, saying, "Well, you love your drug more than you love God. You love your addiction more than you love your family." Which, okay. On one level, maybe. But if you take that approach and say addiction is a sin, then that also assumes that the addictive person has a lot of volition and choice component in that experience. Right. Right? Which, you know, the the, the visual that, that, I, that I've taken to using is, you know, pictures a guy in a canoe or a girl in a canoe 10 feet from the edge of Niagara Falls. Does that person have a choice about which way they row? And i'd say mm. yes they absolutely have a choice and it is absolutely a useless choice <laughs> at that point uh, but you put that same person five miles upstream and say do they have a choice where they row and i'd say yes they do mm. all that to say that choice is not a constant in the way that perhaps some religious right. when people when you throw might. in
0: things like trauma and dissociation and frontal right. cortex deficits and yes yeah then then it does really feel like you're you're trying to choose which direction you're rowing on niagara falls i i really like that <laughs> thanks i
2: i like that too and i'm gonna i'm gonna try to connect uh, sin and the out-of-control nature of it uh, biblically. Because I think the Bible talks about the dual nature of sin in the early stages, uh, voluntary, I have a choice, I, I'm in control. And then progressively, uh, I become enslaved. Mm. It's uh, involuntary, it's out of control, it's, it's gone to seed. And so at, at what point, for what person, on what drug? I don't know, there, there's a mystery there. Mm. But, but even looking at it in terms of sin, there is that choice leading to actually no choice, slavery. And so I see that continuum even relating to sin.
0: And I want to be very clear. I, I, I do think that pastoral counselors, and they can do excellent work. Um, so I wanted to not be misunderstood. But that oftentimes we need we need to be kind of savvy and, and, and know some of these counseling techniques and study addictions in order to work with addictions. That's all I meant.
1: And we should study the science as well. And that's, again, another concern with some religious communities is they tend to put a very low value on science, on evidence, on even just the reality that we are physical bodies. And uh, one of the, I would say, religious barriers could be minimizing the, the physiology the actual brain structure you know not Recognizing that there's a neocortex and there's yeah. a limbic system. The brain is fascinating. The brain is super fascinating and often gets missed in
3: some religious discussions that are very, very much preoccupied with the theology. There's a one big movement in um, addiction studies right now is uh, the involvement of peers and making sure that that peer-delivered services are like a critical aspect of uh, any kind of addiction treatment. And I mean, we have a peer on my team at work, and it's just amazing how she can connect with. Uh, Folks, that I, um, as someone who doesn't identify as a peer, can connect with in ways that just kind of boggle me. Their their shared experience and shared reality it gets somewhere sometimes that I'm not able to go as a as a professional in that sense. I like that trend towards including peers as equal partners in this work and folks that have lived experience uh, of addiction, mental illness. It's it's a critical aspect. I think it's so important and so beautiful. I also think just especially in this country, just looking at uh, culturally specific programs and how important those are, recognizing that our work with uh, the African American population, or folks that are just outside of the mainstream, whether that's LGBTQ uh, folks, we're really stunted sometimes in our ability to to really get folks' experience. And so making sure that we have programs that are designed around this idea that we need to connect with folks that are not just white men that are able to have uh, this one way of communicating and one way of thinking about these problems, but um, there's a, this diversity and, and beauty in that. I just think that's so important and and crucial, making sure that we're we're continuing to push that so that folks uh, who are minorities are getting served well.
1: All right, a more technical question. What is the distinction between soft and hard drugs, and what is the usefulness of this distinction?
0: I'm not sure that it is useful. I'm not super sure that it's useful either. (laughs)
3: Just to clarify what we mean, like, are we are we thinking like, say, marijuana versus uh, methamphetamine? I think that that, be maybe the. I think that's the
1: gist of this question. It's uh, you know, very technical talking about the drugs and correct me if I'm wrong, I think things like methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, those would be considered more hard
0: drugs, alcohol, cannabis, fair. or soft I mean, drugs. You could say that the rate in which they destroy you, potentially, but uh, I think you can get easily off track when you think of these categories, and maybe that's okay. I've known people who use marijuana, and if they didn't use it every two hours, they would have severe problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's a chemical addiction. Maybe there's something emotionally going on. I don't know. But that distinction becomes less helpful
2: when you look at some of those individuals in in my work i, I don't I don't think about that as a, as a category I think in terms of what what kind of behavior does someone do obsessively compulsively over and over again a lot of consequences yet can't stop
1: mm. so other question Jen asks are all addictions problematic
2: addiction obviously has a negative connotation uh, when I think of addiction I think of Someone totally committed to something, maybe alcohol, maybe another drug, maybe a behavior. Can somebody be addicted to God, be addicted to worship? Totally committed, devoted, yes. I, I say not addicted. Yeah. It's yeah, too right, negative right. a connotation. Well,
0: we haven't, we haven't really defined addiction, have we? Like,
2: <laughs> we haven't in this
1: context. But to Bob's point, so this question goes after the question about soft or hard uh, really well, I think, because it we could say, I think we, we the, the distinction between soft and hard drugs soft and hard porn is not a really useful distinction because the mechanism is still the same. You are using that thing addictively for the same reason, for the same neurological reason anyway. So, so then we could look at, you know, are all addictions problematic? You know, we could look at a variety of things. We could u- look at hard drugs, soft drugs, caffeine, nicotine, chocolate, Facebook. We could look at uh, religious activities. And to your point, Bob, we, uh, and I would, I would hope that one who is pursuing God that ardently would be in a healthy state of mind. However, I am also thinking of how the people in the New Testament for whom Jesus had the sharpest critiques were the religious people and the severely religious people who were engaged in what we might argue were empty religious rituals. So I would argue that even
2: religious activities can be a problematic addiction. Yes, I I agree with that completely. And I'll say also, since we're talking about the Bible is Paul in a refreshing way I believe it was in touch with addictions Romans 7 Mm. right what I want to do I don't do and what I don't want to do I do oh the wretched man that I am Mm. and so from a solid perspective of owning up to to sin wanting to move forward in holiness with help from God and other people you know the Bible Paul Romans 7 is in touch Mm -hmm. with that Mm. And, and I agree completely on the religious addiction as well Pharisees I also just think about in in terms of defining addiction,
3: uh, the DSM-5 has moved away from the idea of an addiction and moved more towards this idea of a substance use disorder. Um, And I think one of the most interesting sort of pieces of uh, the diagnostic criteria is significant distress or impairment. And you, you find that all over in terms of different, you know, mental disorders and, um, but really thinking about like, is is there distress or impairment that's you know significant? Perceived or unreal. Hmm? <laughs> Perceived yeah. or real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, also, I mean, if you look at, you know, there's an intervention called SBIRT, Screening and Brief Intervention and Referral to Treatment. It's a really uh, well-researched, well-known sort of mini intervention using motivational interviewing. And basically it just talks, all you do is have a conversation about someone's um, drug use or alcohol use and try to, try to see if it might be impairing them in some way and try to sort of sort that out. And you, you talk with them about what's uh, typical or what's uh, nominal in terms of say alcohol use. So th- so there's this way of having this conversation and the recognition that folks are going to work and coming home and having um, a whole bunch of alcohol every night and, and that uh, they're able to sort of perform their daily right. tasks get through the day. Even though I can't drink as much water as they drink alcohol. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they're thriving in some sense, right? They're uh, by societal standards. They're they're doing all right. The distress or impairment or the problematic use uh, isn't quite there. Now that may progress. And, and we, we also might maybe talk about uh, best life rather than, you know, why are they using so much, right? right. Um, trying to understand some of that stuff. But there is some aspect of it where, where I think um, this is on a spectrum. And there is, um, even drug use that kind of going back to hard drugs that isn't necessarily problematic in the same sense as we think of as an addiction that's really wrecking right. someone's life and kind of tearing down all the relationships
0: and destroying. At least destroying, not that they're even aware of. Yeah, know, yeah. Their kidneys, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. I mean, also thinking about health as a critical aspect of that, right. that's an important one. Well, it
0: just does come back to, well, I'm not sure I have in my head a great definition of yeah. addictions because I might come to a solid conclusion of what I think addictions is and then realize that oxygen, actually qualifies under that definition. Mm. Oops. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm, you do need it to breathe. Uh, It has a very strong half-life. So it's it's hard to pin down what that actually is, because if we say that it's just perceived problem or perceived distress, well, that's not true. Some people would say that they aren't in perceived distress, but Mm -hmm. their body is, or Mm -hmm. their body will be. So, I mean, it is leading towards death. Some addictions may not be leading towards death, but they are leading towards some form of destruction. Mm. So I'm trying to, like, piece together in my head what an addiction, you know, definition is. And it might just be getting on a path that's leading towards serious trouble, Mm. usually death, sometimes just disaster.
1: I like how, Mike, how you're talking about the Mm -hmm. spectrum of addiction Mm. and how some addictions will be like causing problems in your life, having a really toxic explosive Mm. effect. Whereas other addictions are merely preventing you from being your best self and Mm. accessing your best life. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes back to, again, thinking what the addiction is for. And it is, uh, very broadly speaking, to soothe distress of some sort. Mm. Something in your reality is, in reality or in perception, intolerable. So you, you do something, engage in some behavior to help you survive that with an extra bump of dopamine or something. And thus, anything could be done addictively. But there's gonna be a big difference in effect between using meth addictively and using chocolate addictively.
2: And, and there's often a gap, sometimes a significant gap, between the person I'm working with, and what I see, and what he sees. And I really like, mm-hmm. Mike, you mentioned motivational interviewing, just uh, discerning where somebody's at in terms of pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. And so just asking those really good questions mm-hmm. to highlight discrepancy. For example, talking with someone who, who says, I don't really have a problem, then I might ask, you know, on the one hand, I hear that you don't have a problem. On the other hand, two weeks ago, you, you told me that you ha- had four DUIs in the last five years. How do you put that together? A- and just maybe encouraging somebody to, to consider moving from pre-contemplation to contemplating that he might have a deeper problem than he actually thinks he has. <laughs> so I love motivational interview.
1: All right. Tyler asks, How do you support an individual who clearly has a substance use disorder, but still maintains, quote, a level of functionality, quote, and says that they are not able to take three to six months to go to an inpatient treatment, and they may have already tried multiple modalities of treatment in multiple episodes? I think I'm interpreting that question to be asking about the functional addict, and we can hold that term loosely in quotes, and maybe we could contest that term, but someone who is engaged in problematic use of something, and it is causing problems, but problems that are not quite destructive enough to have lost their home. They haven't lost their home. They haven't lost their job. They haven't lost their family yet. (laughs) yet. That's an operative word. But how would we support a person in that situation?
0: I try to educate as much as tolerated, and then uh, try to make some predictions so that they will return to you with whatever rapport you've managed to build and whatever skills you've tried to plant. But if they're in pre-contemplative, they're in pre-contemplative and, and you can't treat them like they're not there. You should focus mostly on rapport building. You should focus mostly on educating. And um, if you can, if you have the clinical skill or insight or, or wisdom to make the right kinds of predictions so that they remember... Oh, someone did say this was gonna happen. Maybe I should go talk to them. That that they'll come back to you or they'll or they'll at least come to their session saying, You know, you were right. What else do you know? And just to try to push along that pre contemplative stage but, but you can't force them into a different stage.
2: And I, I would say that in that scenario, person who doesn't really have much of a problem is not a good candidate to go into long term residential treatment. Because to go into long-term residential treatment, somebody needs to have at least one major problem that he's aware of that warrants being treated that long in residential treatment. He'll wash out of residential treatment. Mm -hmm. So meet somebody where he's at and walk with him at a pace he can sustain. And that may be be outpatient. Mm -hmm. It might be getting a motivational hook if there's some legal problem. Mm -hmm. But but engage him where he's at, where he wants to be. Move with him at a pace he can sustain. He might realize later he has a bigger problem.
1: I may run the argument... through by this fellow or this person that to be in this level of addiction well assuming that they are seeing me on an individual basis in an outpatient setting that would get very expensive after a while because there's only so much I can do in an outpatient setting me and that person maybe I can have them in a group also but they really are going to need to take that break from life at least to get clean and then do some work to to re-engage and by not fully engaging in the work they potentially prolong that work much longer than it may need to take and which costs them more money so therefore i think we could use Apply
0: to them like you you appeal to them on an economic i could maybe (laughs)
1: and point out the finances (laughs) as a way to move them out of pre-consumption
3: addiction is always rational and you know motivated purely by finances (laughs) 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 i work with folks who are in a similar place but on the other end of the spectrum, they often have experienced loss of everything uh, through homelessness, loss of relationships, loss of uh, ability. Often, they're still at the same place where they're saying, "I, you know, don't don't think I have a problem. I don't want to go into uh, inpatient treatment. I've tried inpatient treatment. I've been to DePaul. I've tried methadone. I've tried Suboxone. None of it works. I'm just gonna." Give up? I don't know what else to try. And I find a lot of times my role is is to uh, you know, Bob, love what you said, just walk alongside that person for a time. And so they're they're coming to me and they're saying, my goal is not to stop using right now. I don't think that's what I need. I don't think that's my you know purpose in meeting with you. Um, but I, I bet I can find a few goals uh, or a few things that we can work on and identify in their life. Um, maybe it 's they just want to have another friend. they want one friend in the world and they want to learn how to have a friend that doesn't you know isn 't part of their drug using circle. I think I can help them with that. I think I, can, I think I can make progress with them in that place. And, and, and there's there's a seed of hope in me, and I hope to share that with them, that, that little seed of hope to make sure that they know that I believe that maybe they make that one friend and that's three months of work together. And they keep working down this track towards being able to connect more and then being able to have that one friend and being able to say, you know what? That one friend doesn't use drugs like I do. Maybe I could try that just a little bit and reduce my drug use or mm-hmm. dr- use differently, their, whatever their goal ends up being. Well, I'm thinking again of the
1: neurobiology involved Mm -hmm. and how brain patterns form, brain patterns form based on experiences we have, based on, I I form brain patterns for a sunset, for a sunrise, for cold weather, for hot weather, Mm -hmm. for drug use, for not drug use, Mm -hmm. and I form brain patterns around relationships. Mm -hmm. And with what um, Bob and Mike, you're talking about walking alongside someone, being in healthy relationship with them for potentially a long time, you are creating an environment for them to develop a new pattern of brain functionality, Mm -hmm. which they may not be able to find anywhere else unless, say, they do connect to a healthy 12-stop meeting or other meeting of Mm -hmm. some sort. And I would agree that relationships are absolutely essential in any recovery process. Other question came in. Mike, we'll start with you on this one. Do you practice an abstinence-based or harm reduction model of treatment and why?
3: Yeah, well, I think my previous answer might have exposed it but um, I, I I definitely practice in a harm reduction stance just in in terms of my kind of thinking about that and development I really see harm reduction as encompassing um, an abstinence approach as well so what I mean by that is I meet with a client and um, maybe they're using drugs or maybe they're drinking a lot and they're it's really hurting their their ability to function but they're not in a place where they're saying you know I really want to get into treatment I really want to go to detox and I want to move forward, I still meet with them. Uh, and, I, and I know that in the past, um, mental health professionals would say, hey, I can't work with you in a mental health capacity because you're using drugs. Um, and I know that still happens. I'm saying that isn't my stance. So if someone comes to me and they're in that place, I've found it very helpful to be trained both as a mental health professional and as an addictions counselor so I can sort of wear both hats as needed. So that that's my perspective when when folks come to me and they're kind of in that place. I can kind of be what they need in that place. Um, so if they're needing someone to help them get linked to detox and move through inpatient and then do follow-up care afterwards, I can do that. But also if they're they're saying, you know what? I just want to um, use drugs, and that's where I'm at. But I don't, I don't want to get evicted, and I don't want to end up in the hospital as much. I can talk with them about safe using practices. I can make sure they know how to get to a needle exchange. I can make sure that they're they're in my sphere, and I'm in their sphere, and they can come to me if they need help, if they need assistance. I had a client this week who had an abscess from using. And we were able to have this like really honest conversation about it because there wasn't like shame around the fact that he was using. He, he could tell me, yeah, I was using and I had to use a dirty needle and now I have this abscess in my arm and I gotta go to the hospital. And I was like, yeah, looks like you gotta go to the hospital, this is bad. And we retained that relationship and so he'll come back from the hospital. He'll probably keep using, and I'll probably keep walking with him. And I'm going to keep using my motivational interviewing skills to talk with him about these discrepancies I'm seeing in his life, how he says he wants uh, a different life, but then he keeps going back to this one. And I'll keep working with him in that place. So that's kind of how I see it. Maybe eventually he does move into that phase where he's, you know, a few weeks ago, he said, I want to get into detox. Get me into detox. So I helped him get into detox. And so that was a little window where I know I might I might have an opportunity like that where he's going. To want to try and get
0: abstinent. He's going to want to um, stop using drugs. And there's possibility there. Yeah. So maybe using harm reduction as a means to getting to abstinence. Sometimes, but yeah. not,
3: not always. I think about it like if the client is leading there, I don't necessarily bring my agenda into that relationship. I guess the agenda I am bringing is, is reducing harm in their life. And that doesn't necessarily mean reducing drug use. It might mean using less or using in a different way, a different method, and then increasing quality of life. So they can still have a good quality of life and use drugs. People do it all the time. Yeah, excellent.
1: I'm thinking about what you said, Mike, about how a harm reduction model can include abstinence. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it does. And in the case of stopping use of dirty needles, and using only clean needles, that's a great reduction of harm. We don't want that sort of harm. But I'm also thinking of situations where a person may say, yeah, I want to quit methamphetamines, mm-hmm. cocaine, heroin, and alcohol, but I'm going to hold on to my weed. Yep. By darn, I'm going to hold on to my yep. weed. So we, so we would say, yes, we'll, we'll walk with you. We'll walk with you as far as you're willing to walk and then sit with you when you're sitting there. But the way you talk about it definitely sounds like a harm reduction model allows you to really utilize the stages of change, motivational interviewing. They seem to complement each other really well.
2: I'm, I'm glad there's a whole range of mm-hmm. services and providers, and our niche at the harbor is long-term residential mm-hmm. recovery. So, so definitely abstinence-based from alcohol, other r- drugs, and including nicotine. Men who commit to the, to the hard work of long-term recovery, recovery starts with, with not using, and then uh, it gets harder from there. Because early post acute withdrawal and, and it's just very very difficult. And so I, w- I will say abstinence based, and then I'll also say something about cross addictions because I believe in those well worn yes. neuro pathways for mm. decades. Most of the men I work with, for example, the the satiation neuro pathway, long term painkillers, depressants, alcohol. That's like a six lane super highway going you know down a certain direction and men will want to switch lanes on that same highway yes right Mm. satiation meaning things like they'll want to seek out sex with with a woman or they'll want to overeat and so abstinence-based yes and we realize the tendency toward moving into other addictions as they progressively switch lanes and then eventually get off and go another direction. Mm. So yeah, people start to overeat. We don't kick them out of the program, we work with them. (laughs) And also say, so I used to work at Portland Rescue Mission
3: in a different part of their program, and one of the things the executive director said a lot that I really loved was having they, they, they are trying to have a sort of this ladder of different spectrums of support with uh, sort of this long-term recovery sort of at the top of the ladder, if you will. But they have immense numbers of outreach hours and volunteers who are working with folks who are still on the streets using drugs. You know, they're walking with people as they're deciding and, and choosing what's going to work best for them. So there's this whole spectrum.
2: That's exactly it. It's guest services, food, clothing, shelter, immediate needs. There's extended shelter shelter for men who want a dialogue with a staff member, work, working toward a good direction, connect housing employment, long-term recovery.
1: So given the context of a residential program, uh, especially a residential treatment program, different than long-term A&D housing, abstinence does seem like it makes a lot more sense given that context, given that culture. And, and I do love the idea of a total abstinence just for the, again, considering the brain, giving the brain a chance to thoroughly reset all at once. And in a supported environment, seems like a much more feasible option.
2: It does. And I'll say another thing about abstinence in the long-term program at the harbor. The only things that are automatic choices to leave, and men sometimes make these choices, are using drugs, alcohol, threatening and hitting people, mm-hmm. and stealing stuff. Because in our community, other men don't feel safe enough to heal and grow when other people are using around them, they're being threatened. And their stuff's being stolen, so automatic choice to leave. Everything else, we you know we work we work with men on to meet them where they're at, walk with them at a pace they can sustain, and even when I'm telling a man you've you've made a choice to leave, I can I can get you a bed at Burnside, and I'd like to invite you to a community accountability meeting tomorrow at eleven with a couple of staff, three senior residents, which is your opportunity to to come back here. And at that point, we're looking for ownership and a willingness to get further deeper help to work on whatever it was.
3: Also, chat a little bit about uh, Central City Concerns' uh, housing choice model. So Central City Concerns started out in the early or late '70s with a lot of uh, single resident occupancy housing. uh, That a lot of it was actually um, alcohol and drug free, and we still have a lot of alcohol and drug free housing. We I think we run about 1,800 units in downtown Portland and across the metro area, and um, we have a combination of wet housing uh, where folks are able to use drugs or drink, and then um, alcohol. drug-free housing. And one of the one of the goals is to be able to make a choice between what's going to work best for me right now in my life. Uh, is it going to work best to go to somewhere that, that's supported, that other people are not using drugs, um, and where I can kind of pursue my recovery and be abstinent? Or is it going to be best right now for me to just get off the street, get a place that's safe, and find somewhere that's going to work for me, and maybe work towards that goal of getting abstinent long-term, or maybe not, and just and finding some more safe and stable. So being able to actually have a choice for someone who's in that situation is is sort of the the goal of having uh, the housing choice model, as we call it.
1: Giving options and choices seems like a really great thing, a really great gift.
3: All right, last question for this session. What is the
1: difference between abstinence and recovery? Or we could maybe say between abstinence and sobriety. And how would a client or clinician know when that difference has been crossed.
2: One thing I'll say is that abstinence you know, is simply not using. And, and I view that as a first step, maybe the first step, toward long-term recovery. I see recovery as growing into becoming the person God created me to be, or, or the person that God created him or her to be. That takes time. And most of the men that I, that I work with, post-acute withdrawal can be 6 to 18 months, mm-hmm. which is about the time at the end of our program early one year significant but it's really the beginning after maybe 30 years of of addiction and so often it takes five to seven years to kind of grow into being kind of comfortable with with the new life and that certainly means connection with God and people in recovery churches friends family reconciliation Mm. just takes a long time
3: yeah, I mean, I think thinking about uh, relationships again, kind of feel like that's been our theme. But you can you can be in prison and be abstinent, but not have any relationships or connections. Really good, that's, you point. know. <laughs> I mean, example. you can also be in prison and not be abstinent. It's true, it, but <laughs> yeah, um, that it's, might it's be much harder. The, yeah, that might be the. The truth is that you can you can be in an environment where it's difficult to gain access to you know drugs or alcohol. You know I, I worked with a, a fellow just a while back who was in one of our alcohol and drug free housing buildings, and he got a voucher, moved out into uh, the community, uh, was using a voucher to pay for his, his rent at his apartment, and almost within you know forty eight hours he had relapsed because he uh, the the voucher was great, but he moved out of this supportive community you know, um, out of the supportive community, out of this accountability that that brings um, and into a a place that that didn't really offer any, any, you know, reason not to use, uh, didn't have many connections, really hadn't progressed into recovery at that point, was really abstinent for about six months. And just thinking about how infantile his recovery really was at six months um, of basically just living in an apartment that made it so he couldn't drink and having sort of the, the Punishment keep him sober. It didn't work, <laughs> you know. Once that punishment was gone, the incentive to not drink was gone. I think would agree
1: too. A major difference between abstinence and recovery is the difference between a behavior change and a personal transformation. To your point, Mike, it would be very easy in most incarceration scenarios to be abstinent just by sheer lack of access. But that doesn't mean you've changed at all it doesn't mean you're interested in recovery doesn't mean you've learned anything about emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. or relational health or anything whereas a person who really truly embarks on a journey a long journey like you said bob multiple years journey of recovery sobriety that person has allowed their body to get completely clean they have allowed their body to normalize to not having the substances or the addictive behavior they've undergone a significant change in in values in instincts in relational styles in emotional intelligence and in potentially spiritual orientation in community status and it's really they're a whole different person at that point point. and like you said that's a lot of time that's a lot of work and a much more Holistic process, like you said, Josh, and also a very difficult process,
2: too. Michael Dye in the Genesis process says it really well. As I remember, he says that addiction is self-gratification, and that speaks to the isolation of addiction. He also says that recovery is learning to trust again. Mm -hmm. And I'll modify that a little bit. Many times, recovery is learning to trust for the very first Mm -hmm. time at age 50. How how hard is that? That'd be terrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so trust takes a long time facing those fears. I'll be rejected. I'll be abused.
1: Yeah. And again, trust, I mean, thinking about stages of development and what does Eric Erickson say happens within the first two years of your life, you learn your basic sense of trust or mistrust. And that's a pervasive, inherent, very deep down subconscious sense that carries with you your whole life. And so, yes, at age 50, to it, try to change that,
0: it takes a long time to work out of that. And I, I think uh, Kristen Bell was talking about her experience with her therapist. Uh, and I saw a video of that. And she actually said her therapist told her, don't walk 10 miles into the forest and expect to get out in five. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I gotta remember that. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: All right. As a wrap up, if you were addressing a group of addictions counseling students, uh, who had not necessarily asked a question, but you had opportunity to impart one last pearl of wisdom, Bob and Mike. What would your last thought be for them?
2: Be be who you are. Be who God created you to be, and that and that's powerful. Don't try to be someone else. Be who you are. God uses that. Programs are important. Curriculum is important. A lot of things are important, and it's you. Just be being you. So, someone said, if you don't care, God can't use you. So so care. You know, if you care too much in a negative way codependency then you won't last in this field so care deeply be who you are and god's going to use you mightily and pay attention to your own health that was really good
3: i guess i don't forget when you're when you're sitting across you know the room with someone and they're talking about their life and their story and I guess just don't don't forget what a privilege that is for for us to be invited into that space in our life because I think once we take that for granted and and sort of act like that isn't a big deal for someone to share so deeply from uh, deep inside them I think once we forget that I think I think uh, it's really easy to uh, stop caring and and, and it just becomes so much, so much harder to sustain this work when, when we just kind of lose the, the, the sense of gratitude and awe of just being with someone who's, who's so open and brave to share their story. And I, I just think about how hard it is for anyone, uh, any human to, to share deeply with a stranger. And the fact that our folks often do that with us in such a magnificent way, it's, it's just uh, it's humbling, you know? And I think not, not forgetting that is really important.
0: I really appreciate both of you coming on and it's been great getting to know you just a little bit through answering these questions. I think I've actually learned a lot and have a deep appreciation for what you guys do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you really sound like you're really down there in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And us private practice guys, we're like, wow, really sheltered, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, we're really out there. (laughs) Yeah, it's really true. But I wanted to express our gratitude for having you on and deep respect for what you do um, as well as enjoying being with you and hoping that we have more opportunities to interact in the future.
1: For sure. I always learn something around Bob. Yeah. <laughs> so. all right thank you bob and mike for being with us thank, thank you josh you. again thank, you for, your thank listener you for for <laughs> checking with us and we will be back with more smart council you're the sparkle
0: in my eye you're my eye. the fire